and welcome to episode number 144 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm this week's host, Adrian Pocabelli, and I am the online editor of the Northern Miner. I help keep the website organized and exciting, and I also help take care of the social media. And for those who are following our feeds on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, even LinkedIn last week, you'll have noticed that our former editor-in-chief and podcast host, John Cumming, had his last day on Thursday after 23 years at the Northern Miner. You can see a good photo of John and our publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, taken on Thursday on our Twitter feed, at Northern Miner, or on any of the other social media feeds. And it was kind of moving. John had a little award, so it was just a nice moment in the history of this storied paper. I've worked with John since 2012, and John's a lot of fun to be around. He's always exposing himself to new ideas, and so there's always a lot to talk about, and that's probably my favorite quality that he has. Again, this open mind and willingness to try new things, build new skills, and so he will definitely be missed from over here. Uh, John's joining Goldminer Agnico Eagle as a senior geologist, uh, technical reporting, and so we wish him the best for what sounds like a pretty interesting and exciting adventure. If you look at our website at northernminer.com, you'll see we just posted our Canada's Top 10 special, where we summarize in a few different articles Canada's biggest mining companies by market cap, some of the biggest precious metals developers, the biggest diamond companies, the biggest base metal and uranium explorers, and some of the most important suppliers in the country. Whether you're new to mining or you're a veteran, what's nice about these articles is they're a nice broad survey of what's going on in this country. So it's a great way to just reacquaint yourself with what's going on in the, in the industry at a quiet time of year for this industry summer. So it's a, I've always liked this special. And uh, if you're on our homepage, you'll see that we've grouped them all together at the bottom in one of our special focus sections. And if you don't visit the bottom of the, like if you visit our website a lot, but you don't scroll down to the bottom, uh, you'll miss some interesting stuff. Like we have our podcasts listed, we have our site visits, we have our cartoon, you, you know, we have every maybe three weeks we have a new cartoon from the great JK, who has been a great contributor for years and years. I think he used to work at the Northern Miner. And at the bottom there, you'll also see our two special focus sections from the last two newspapers. And so, yeah, so you'll see the Canada's top 10 listed there. So it's all together and yeah, so it's pretty simple. And as far as the print edition, you'll just find it right in the middle where we normally put our special focuses. And for those that want to subscribe, you can visit our homepage online and you'll see a subscriptions button right at the top and you can get online, you can get uh, print. And we also have the mobile friendly website. So there's a lot of different options. Continuing with the theme of the previous episodes, we're going to return to some of the very interesting gold discussions we heard at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London in May. Uh, the Northern Miner and Canada House put this on and it's a great event and it attracts very impressive 
executives, and this week is no different. We have Yamana Gold Executive Chairman Peter Maroney, and he's giving chairman's remarks on Yamana Gold and the gold mining industry in general. What I found really interesting about this speech was he kind of goes into the challenges of running a mining company and he talks about how in 2014 the company ran into trouble in two of its mines. It had to take on a huge amount of debt and how how they dealt with those challenges and how they basically overcame them and how these things are never super clean. I mean, he had to deal with issues of loyalty because if you have to get rid of some mine, but you, you know, and but you had people had really helped you get that mine, and they had jobs, and yeah, it's a, for me. I found that a poignant point when he mentions the loyalty because you can tell he's torn at what's best for the company, but also what's his personal relationship, and ultimately. As an executive, you have to go with what's best for the company, but that's a very difficult thing to do, and there are limits to that as well. This should be a very interesting discussion, and yeah, you can hear how Peter Maroney helped get Yamana back on firmer footing. So we hope you enjoy this. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of juniors with mines and advanced projects in the Yukon. You can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at investyukon. But before we hear from Peter Maroney, we have a sponsored segment that we call a Mining Minute. Now we have the third in a series of Mining Minutes sponsored segments by Sandvik. Here we continue with Peter Corcoran. He's the Vice President of Sandvik Mining and Rock Technology Canada. He will talk about Canada as a leader in mining innovation and what the new tracks acquisition means for Sandvik going forward. From the process control, we can then move to automation, which we've been very successful implementing our Automine solutions many of the Canadian mines in Canada. I, again, I want to emphasize that this has been happening for an awful long time in Canada, and I think it's not being made relevant to the business outside of Canada, but Canada is a leading edge in this technology, and, and it improves the utilization when going through shift change, obviously, and blast clearing, because a lot of the mines in Canada, as we heard earlier, are deep. They're being redeveloped at depth, and that means time to travel to the site is a much longer process. So we have to optimize that period of time. And that's our, been our focus area with quite a few customers in Canada. So from the Automine technology, our customers actually uh, advised us that, yes, we're using the Optimine system to capture equipment and fleet data from our own equipment. So I'm happy to say that uh, in April of this year, and I'm joined by Alex Savinka, who's sitting in the audience over here, he's the president of Nutrax. Uh, they joined the Samba family because we had to obviously not only bring the technology that our equipment delivers in regards to maintenance, but we also had to then look at the IoT of the rest of the mine, the connectability of control and people. So uh, Nutrax, so this brings us to this acquisition. Uh, Nutrax has many capabilities, including telemetry, machine help, on other fleet, not just Samba. So that means we can bring the complete message and information to the site rather than just on the Sandvik equipment. 
So uh, NUSAX will continue to develop their technologies independent of SAMVIC so that they'll be offering this system to non-SAMVIC mines as well. So still, this is a focus and we need to keep that uh, moving forward. And one of the aspects of taking on new tracks into our portfolio was that you can't manage what you don't measure. So you need to measure everything that's happening at the site, not just the equipment telemetry. So that's, again, a very big part of what new tracks bring SAMVIC. We're going to take a small musical break and come back with our featured segment with Peter Moroni. Now, the program says it's uh, chairman's remarks, and I grappled with that because this is an investor presentation that we have been giving for the past several weeks. But I hope that in the context of the broader chairman's remarks, referring to this presentation and referring to what Yamana is doing, has done, continues to do, and will, will continue to do, will also reflect on some of the themes that perhaps other companies would look on and say, that's something that we should be considering. Investors will look on and say that's something that we need to consider as part of our investment thesis. The starting point is focus, geographical focus, a jurisdictional focus. From the very beginning in 2003 when this company was formed, we said, look, we're going to be an America's focused company. And at the time, it was probably not clear to people because we had only one small producing mine in Brazil. And we said we're an America's focused company. And a lot of people scratched their head and said, but isn't that just Brazil? And since then, in the last 15 years, we've gone from Brazil into Chile, Argentina, and now into Canada as well. What we say here is a high-quality portfolio with long-life assets. We look at life of assets, not just in terms of what's immediately available on proven and probable reserves, but we also look at what's the potential for increases in proven and probable, initially with resources, where we don't have resources, where we have uh, mineralization or prospects, that will increase that. Interestingly, our newest mine, Cerro Moro, has about six and a half years of mine life, but it's an epithermal vein system with 32 identified targets. It is small open pits and, and underground, very rich grade, uh, more than 11 grams for gold and 650 grams for silver. So with six and a half years of mine life, I can't say to you that it's a long life asset, but I can say to you that there's an excellent opportunity here for us to expand the life of mine of the, this project. It reminds us a lot of El Pinon. And El Pinon, at about this stage in its development in 1999 to 2000, it had about a million and a half ounces. And if I look at gold equivalency between silver and gold at Cerro Moro, it's about 1.4, 1.5 million ounces. But in its life, El Pinon, as we say in this presentation, uh, has produced more than 5 million ounces of gold and over 120, 130 million ounces of silver. 
And in 2007, it had seven years of mine life, and in 2019, it has seven to eight years of mine life. Very prolific epithermal vein systems, and that's what we mean by long life assets. Not necessarily identified today, but clearly where there's a, a prospect to be able to do that. Coming back to jurisdiction for a moment, I, I don't want to leave you with the impression that, it, that there are countries that are not better than these countries, or that wherever you might be mining is not a good place to be mining. I was discussing this morning with this gentleman the prospects of going into Africa. I'm not sure I know where the DRC is entirely, but I know that it's somewhere in Central Africa. It is not something that fits our portfolio. It's not something that fits what we're doing. I'm not saying that it isn't a good place to be mining, but what we look for is places that have mining certainty. So often I'm asked about Argentina. So here's a former president that wants to become a vice president, a country that is, has fiscal imbalances, very significant fiscal imbalances, has borrowed money from the IMF, has defaulted before, probably will default again. Uh, it goes through these, these, these uh, trials and tribulations. But no one can deny that even in a country that has those fiscal challenges, no one can deny that it has an established rule of law and it has an established code of conduct for mining. You don't run the risk that you wake up one morning looking at your breakfast table, looking at what's on that breakfast table, wondering how great the day will be and only to learn that somebody has made some proclamation that says, I'm expropriating one asset or another or I'm doing the following things that are not particularly good things. We like to be in, in jurisdictions where there's a mining friendliness and where there's a mining pedigree, where there's a tolerance for mining. And certainly these four countries, Canada, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile, are countries that f check those boxes of where we want to operate. A track record for consistency. I'm not saying to you that we've always been consistent, but certainly we have a long track record of consistency. We've been very good over the years of being able to translate what's in the ground into production and production to cash flows. We're looking at how to get better on generating free cash flows. You heard in the discussion this morning how that's becoming increasingly more relevant but a long track record of delivering on production and cost goals. And interestingly, in the last several years, certainly under the management of uh, Danielle Racine, our president and chief executive officer, formerly our COO, now our CEO, we've not only been able to deliver, but also we've been able to, what we guide, we've actually increased our guidance mid-year and then beat that guidance uh, as well. Diversification, I think that's important. We certainly uh, like precious metals. We do still have, soon we will not have, a copper mine. That's our Chapada mine. We've agreed to sell that mine. We're getting four, more, far more than fair value for that asset. Part of the reason for it is, as you see on the, these, uh, uh, at the bottom of the page, we looked to strengthen our balance sheet. In 2014, this company hit a bit of a briar patch. Uh, we stumbled. We had a couple of development stage assets that did not go entirely to plan, and what made it worse is that we then had to manage those assets. Ultimately, we sold those assets, and when, then we had to clean up the balance sheet aftermath of all of that. We borrowed on our revolver, a billion-dollar revolver, and two years before, we had zero borrowed on it, and at the end of 2014, we had $410 million borrowed on that revolver, and that put a bloat on the, the balance sheet of the company. And as you are aware, that's off, that often creates limitations on the financial flexibility that's available to a company. Selling this asset at more than fair price, roughly a billion dollars of total consideration, $800 million upfront completely cleans up the balance sheet. 
it breaks the back of that, uh, that debt position. It brings our net debt debit down to a very, very manageable 1.5. And then with free cash flow that we're generating and several other initiatives that are in front of us, in the next year and a half to two years, we intend to bring that down to below one turn of EBITDA. But more importantly, what it does is it gives us financial flexibility to pursue the goals of increasing ounces in the ground, increasing uh, production, and also increasing returns to shareholders. You are aware that on announcing that deal, we've already doubled our dividend, and our expectation is that we can probably continue with that as well. The improvement in the balance sheet, that alone, generates about 105 to $107 million of free cash flow in the next three years just by the interest saving that we have. And we've decided that some of that, because we are generating free cash flows and still investing into the ground, we've decided that some of that should go back to our shareholders. We started with a light version of that with an increase, a doubling of our dividend. As one of our shareholders mentioned yesterday, it seem, he said, it seems to me that you can probably do that again and again. And the answer is we probably will, but we'll be prudent, we'll be disciplined. Once we close the deal, as we increase the cash balances that we have, we'll come back to the question of how do we further increase shareholder returns by delivering cash to shareholders. That could not have happened without some of the changes that have occurred in the company in the last four or five years. And one of the themes I hope I can communicate to you is don't stay static, make changes where the changes are necessary. As Steve Letwin said this morning, if something isn't working, change it. Look, I'm, I'm fiercely loyal. I, I believe in loyalty. And sometimes it's difficult because sometimes what you have to do is you have to say those that are running the company or that are running certain aspects of the company, you require a change. Uh, and notwithstanding the loyalty, at some point you have to do the right thing and make those changes. Four or five years ago, we embarked on that path. In that four-year period, we've completed several succession plans. We took a succession plan for the head of exploration, for our chief financial officer, then for our chief operations officer, and most recently, our chief operations officer has completed a succession plan with myself as a founder and chief executive since 2003. I took on the more limited role of executive chairman, and he took on the role of chief executive officer. We've added to our board of directors so that we can create more depth on our board of directors. We've removed an entire layer of management in the company. We'd become bloated. We had too much management, too many vice presidents. It was a very, I, I'm not saying this by throwing eggs, I'm not casting aspersions, but it was a South American model of, of many layers of management and consultation and discussion. We took a Quebecois model, which is get the general manager, get the right general manager. He reports directly to a senior vice president or the chief operations officer, streamline the organization, make decisions very quickly, and move from there. So significant improvements to the management. And incidentally, that then also took our GNA from 142 million five years ago to roughly $80 million today. And we think there's further improvement that can come from that. We've upgraded our portfolio. And one of the things that I think is important to communicate, I, I am only 59 years old. I hope I don't come across as looking old to you or sounding old to you. I don't know that I've got enough experience or age to be able to say, here are the lessons learned. But if I can, one of the lessons that, that we've learned is you cannot manage a company that has too many assets to manage. I think the sweet spot for a gold mining company is between five and eight assets. Go above that and it becomes very difficult to do. So I applaud some of these mergers that we discussed this morning 
where they'll be managing 15, 16 mines as much as 20 to 22 mines, God bless, because that's going to require a lot of effort. And if that means that we're not as capable as some of the other companies, we like the capabilities that we have. We think that five to eight mines is the sweet spot for the number of mines in a portfolio. We've sold some of the mines that were in excess of that, some of the smaller mines, and we're concentrating on those core mines with five producing mines today. Part of the success of the company also has come from being able to build assets effectively. We've not always succeeded at doing that. Uh, as I said, in 2004, we, uh, we stubbed our toe. Heck, we stuck a sword through our foot. We had a couple of development stage assets, as I said, that did not go entirely to plan. So we changed how we manage asset, the development of assets. In the case of Cerro Moro, as you see at the bottom here, we built it on time and on budget in a part of the world, in a part of Argentina that is challenged in development of assets. But why we, did, we were successful at doing that is that we decided that before we're putting a shovel into ground, before we're spending $300 million of capital, which is the capex of this project, we completed more than 87% of the detailed engineering. So we went from feasibility study to detailed engineering, completed that amount of detailed engineering so that it gave us more certainty and more competency in terms of how long it would take to develop the, the mine and the cost of development. So I'm happy to say that that has been a success and it is the path forward. If it means that it takes an extra six months or nine months to develop something, I'd rather take that time. We would rather take that time. I hope we can communicate to you that that's an important lesson learned in terms of, uh, of building high quality operations. Uh, we elected to sell our Chapada copper gold mine. It was a difficult decision for us. I go back to what I said a few moments ago about loyalty. We developed this mine. Those of you who remember Yamana in 2003 to 2007, we put it into production in early 2007. We were told it's a low-grade deposit amongst the lowest in the world. We were told that it can't be developed. Uh, we were told that you can't possibly do it for $240 million with 16 million tons of throughput per year. And we did all of that. What was overlooked was that the strip ratio was less than one-to-one. -one. So the strip-adjusted grade was actually in the top one-third, perhaps quartile, of the copper gold assets in the world. It was difficult for us to sell it because we've developed it. We have, this is, we've nurtured this asset. Our general manager, when Danielle and I were there a few weeks ago, reminded us that he joined the company in 2005 and people did not believe that this asset could be built and we built it. He reminded me that there was a vision and that vision led to the development of this asset. Maybe a lesson is don't let people tell you you can't do it. Just go on and get it done. But he also said he met his wife there, they have three children. So there's a personal side to it that we can't overlook. We're business people, but we can't overlook the personal side. So it was a difficult decision for us, but we're getting more than fair value for it. It is going into proper hands to continue the, to manage the asset and the people there effectively. And it does a world of improvement to our balance sheet. So with that improvement to the balance sheet, we create financial flexibility, it enhances our free cash flow, as I mentioned a moment ago, significantly reduces our debt, allows us to be able to enhance our shareholder returns, rebalances the portfolio more to precious metals, and allows us to be able to get this level of production increases. And that blue bar is really important uh, because that blue bar is an extra 150,000 ounces of new gold production that will come very inexpensively and it will come from existing operations. And one further lesson learned is, is the 
The best new ounce is an ounce that you discover and you mine at an existing operation. And so that 150,000 ounces comes from our, our Canadian Malartic mine and from our Jacobina mine. Let me speak a few moments on Jacobina in the few moments that I have left. In 2014 and 2013, we throttled back on this operation and it was producing 76,000 ounces per year. We were told, and there's actually a person in the room who actually said, why don't you sell it, it's not core. And yet, we looked at it and said, there are millions of ounces that are not yet discovered in this deposit and we need to learn how to mine it more effectively. And look at the growth of production over the course of these years. From 76,000 ounces to last year's 145,000 ounces, we're now mining at 5,800 tons per day. The plant is at 6,500 tons per day. It requires some modest modifications, pipes and motors, really. Uh, we're already mining faster than we're processing at more than 6,500 tons per day. The existing grade, 6,500 tons per day, no more than a couple of million dollars to put that into development by next year. It gets us to a production platform that is about 170,000 ounces, and we now have a new plan that takes it to more than 225,000 ounces with a plant increased 8,500 tons per day. However, and this is where it's important to look at the, the what-ifs and the howevers, we also looked at it and said, but the great trajectory of this asset in the last several years has been going up. We had a great increase last year, the year before. We will have another great increase this year. Every new zone of these reefs that we're discovering is coming in at higher grade than reserve grade. So the trajectory for grade is actually going from the 2.34 grams we're carrying today closer to 2.6. So as we get to that 2.6, the what if is staying at 6,500 tons per day, not spending the capital to go to 8,500 tons per day, and that takes us to a production platform of over 190,000 ounces. Now, 190,000 ounces is the first part. The second part is we're already carrying more than 13 years of proven and probable reserves. We're carrying more than 2 million ounces of resources, another million ounces of inferred resources, all at higher grade than reserve grade. And so clearly this has been a, a, a resounding success for us. We chose not to sell it. We're happy we did not sell it. And now it has become one of our more prolific producing mines with a very long life. We estimate certainly more than 15 years. It could be significantly longer than that. I know I'm running out of time, but let me deal for a few moments on Canadian Malartic. Canadian Malartic is, is uh, also one of these assets. We did not develop it. We bought it in 2014, as you may remember. But in 2000 and maybe 11 or 12, you remember that we were being told that you can't mine a one gram deposit in Canada, an open pit deposit in Canada, it isn't going to work. And look at how successful OSISCO was, and we're very happy that we acquired OSISCO in 2014. We've taken the throughput from 48,000 tons per day to 55, 56,000 tons per day. We're now developing the higher grade Barnett deposit, but more interestingly is what's been discovered with Odyssey and East Malartic, these are underground zones rather than open pit. We see the potential for another 150,000 ounces, so our 50% would be another 75,000 ounces, a very modest capital investment. We had a vision in 2014, there were only eight drill holes into Odyssey at the time. Uh, listen to the geologist who discovered it, because he'll tell you what he thinks. And he said, I think you've got a deposit here, he was right. So we think that there's a, an excellent potential for the increase in production, and that will extend mine life also.
Seromoro I touched on. It is a very high-grade deposit, generates one of our better cash flows and free, ca free cash flows. Our objective in the next several years is to increase proven and probable reserves, full stop. It doesn't need anything else other than that, and we're very confident that we'll be able to deliver on that. We've touched on El Peñon, but one of the things that I haven't said about El Peñon is sometimes it is better to pull back on production to improve the financial performance of an asset. This mine was producing more than 220,000 ounces of gold per year and about 7.5 million ounces of silver. So on a gold equivalency basis, well in excess of 300 and a quarter thousand ounces. But we were also doing more than 50 kilometers of underground development per year, $60 million per year in development, $30 million in exploration. We throttled it back. We said this mine has done its share of the heavy lifting. So let's pull it back to 150,000 ounces of gold, six million ounces, of four, four to, five to six million ounces of silver, still a, an impressive mine at more than 200,000 ounces gold equivalent. But more importantly, because we're spending one half of the amount on development and on exploration, we now generate more free cash flow from this asset with less risk than we did before we throttled it back about three, uh, four years ago. Uh, long life, the, the uh, bars that you see with the, the lines through them is the production. The other bars are the total resources that we have, and that goes back to what I'd said before about long life. And since I'm being given the cue to come off stage in a, in a couple of seconds, maybe a couple of minutes, let me uh, highlight one final thing in the portfolio. We have something that, we, one of the things we discussed earlier was what does the market miss? And I think the market sometimes misses opportunities that are in a portfolio that are not producing mines. We have five producing mines, but we have, but we have a raft of what we call strategic assets. The most advanced is Aguarica. This is one of the larger copper, gold, molly deposits in the world with 25 years of mine life, uh, very high quality grade, production platform of 370 million pounds of copper per year, but in the first 10 years, more than 500 million pounds of copper per year, a very significant mine. It also happens to have a next door neighbor, the Alumbrera mine, where the mine has just been exhausted and that's 36 kilometers away. We're a partner in Alumbrera, we have a minority stake. We have 100% of Aguarica. We came to a conclusion. Why don't we integrate the two projects? Let's not build a new plant. Let's, by conveyor, take the ore from Aguarica and take it to Alumbrera and that allows us to save hundreds of millions of dollars of capital costs and reduces the risk significantly. We can use the current tailings facilities. We may be able to use the exhausted pit for tailings and, for, uh, and, and possibly also for waste. That 36 kilometer by, by conveyor is not a challenge. Clearly there's a cost associated to it. But this is a project that is now at the development stage and we've advanced that development by saying we're not going to develop it as a $3 billion plus project standalone. There's an excellent synergy between what is already there as a plant and what we have as, as a deposit. We're delivering a pre-feasibility study in the next month or so, feasibility study by this time next year. In the integrated project, we have 56%. And here's an interesting question for you, maybe rhetorical. But how much do you think this asset is carried in analyst models, those analysts that cover this company. Very, very good, zero. So we certainly think that there's value here. We think that there's a true value proposition. It will be a very significant 
improvement to the overall value of this company. And one can assume that we will probably look to monetize all of some part of it, which will bring in further cash into the treasury of the company. So with that, I'll skip on these other pages because it's just financial stuff. But uh, the most important part is that, uh, as I said in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the panel discussion, I think where the value proposition is, is sticking to your knitting, being a significant or a dominant intermediate company, focusing on the quality of your portfolio and on the jurisdictions in which you operate, become relevant in those jurisdictions. Don't worry about bigger is better, just get better. Thanks very much. does it for this episode of the Northern Miner podcast. As always, you can help the podcast by giving us a review or by liking, subscribing, and sharing it online. All these things help raise the profile of the podcast. And let's give one last thank you to our longtime podcast sponsor, Yukon Mining Alliance, and our Mining Minute sponsor, Sandvik Mining. Until then, we'll see you online at northernminer.com and on Twitter, at Northern Miner, Instagram, at the Northern Miner, and on LinkedIn. Enjoy your week.